college admissions is an ever-changing landscape. And applying to college has never been harder in wake of our new normal. That's why we are revolutionizing college admissions, one application at a time. Welcome to Talk College to Me, a D100 radio podcast featuring your co-hosts, Lynn Stewart and Vicki Thompson. Welcome to our new podcast, Talk College to Me. It is our pleasure to welcome John Bokenstedt today. John, I met you years ago when you were the Associate Vice President for Enrollment at DePaul University in Chicago. Last year, you made the move out west and currently serve as Vice Provost of Enrollment Management at Oregon State University. You are nationally known as an expert in enrollment management and a helpful partner of college counselors because of your ability to consider data trends in our work and your blog writing and media posts on important topics in college admissions. John, please share with us your experience in college admissions, including what's kept you in the profession for so many years. Hi. Well, first of all, thanks for having me here. It's really great to be with you and to talk about something I do every day for a living. I started an admission shortly after I graduated from college in the early 80s, and I was probably the last person you would ever think would go into admissions because I'm inherently a shy person and not someone who likes standing behind tables and talking to people. But what I found out was that I could make a difference in the lives of students. And I was a student who was not just a first-generation college student. I was a first-generation high school student. My parents finished their education at the eighth grade level. And so I could see in my own life what an amazing change higher education had done for me, how, how it affected my life. And I wanted to give everyone that opportunity if they had the talent and the ability and the drive. So in, in college admissions, when you want to move up in the world, you frequently have to change places and go someplace else and move across the country. So after my first job at Mount Mercy College in Iowa, I went to the University of Dallas. Then I worked at Grinnell. Then I went uh, and did consulting for a couple of years, moved to St. Bonaventure, where I was for seven years. Uh, that's in upstate New York. And then DePaul for 17 years. And now I've been at Oregon State just over a year. And it's been a great ride. And I can't believe when I tell people I've been doing this for 37 years now. Thank you, John. That's great. Other guest is Jeff Gallant. Jeff, you started at Boston College around the same time I made the move from college admissions to high school college counseling. This means we've known each other for almost 20 years. I know that you've been very active in your New England Association of College Admission Counseling, serving as vice president, and also in 2012, receiving the William S. Neal Award which recognizes distinguished service by a New England admission counselor. My question to you is, could you share a little with us about your journey in college admissions and what's kept you in the profession for almost 20 years, or actually maybe a little more than 20 years? Sure thing, Lynn. And let me just start by saying it's been the best almost 20 years of my life, Lynn. But um, and it's great to, to, to be here with John as well, an honor, and Vicki. Yeah, I think it started with just the thrill of representing my alma mater which is you know still there for me. I will say my first job though is at Stonehill College. So if I could put a little plug in for Stonehill, that is a terrific school, small school, Catholic in Massachusetts. I had a great time there. I might still be at Stonehill, if not in 2004, the Boston College Undergraduate Admissions Office had five openings. And it's nice to finish in fifth place, but still be on the podium. 
Um, since, <laughs> since then, I've, I've enjoyed a great career representing my alma mater. I've been at BC since, since 2004. You know, I think it's just, it's really rewarding to help students find the right fit, you know, especially if that fit ends up being your institution. You know, I want students to enjoy their undergraduate years. And then, you know, I think that's a great gift if they're proud of the place. You know, they're proud graduates of the institution for the rest of their lives. That's a powerful thing. And playing a role and and helping achieve that, you know, I really enjoy. And then where I am in my career right now, I'm really in a sweet spot. You know, some of my mentors are still around. They haven't retired yet. I still benefit from their wisdom and their counsel. And then, you know, I get to pay it forward and be more of a role model for younger generations and and show them what a terrific profession this can be. And then also to you just the relationships. You know, I, I feel like my main role is to cultivate relationships, you know, with with students, with families, with counselors. And so now when I travel, I've been reading the same high schools for my entire time at BC. You know, when I travel, I, I see no longer colleagues, I see friends. And I think that just helps the process work better for everyone. It, it's been incredibly rewarding to see how satisfied families are, you know, with the investment. It's not just sharing your son or daughter, but it's also the, the investment of, of money and resources and, and just... So many parents that I've met through the years are, are just just very satisfied, and that that is that that makes you feel good. And I think it, you know at this point in missions, it's it's a complicated time, even before you know this COVID nineteen crisis. You know, and I think just being able to be an authentic voice and helping students and families you know, navigate the process and be a resource. And at this point, I feel like I'm a connector too. You know, I, I think I have a good network. Having I have a unique network in that I went to. That my employer and I've worked there for a long time. So I, I think as far as the admissions process, you know, I'm just a cog in the machine. You know, I'm not a gatekeeper. I just, you know, I just go with the current. But you know, on the back end, I, I'm able to keep in contact with students. And you can kind of have a little bit of a student affairs role too and help them maybe with internship opportunities or jobs after with people I've met through the years. And you know, I, I so it, it allows me to have a longer, deeper relationship with students now. Well, my friend, it has certainly been an honor for me to work with you. And just as a college counselor, it means so much to have someone at an institution that knows your school. And um, I appreciate everything that you do, Jeff. I really do. Ditto. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. As we all know, the pandemic has changed the landscape for college freshmen and high school seniors who are entering the college process. John, you were a first-generation high school and college student, and, and the pandemic's made it even more difficult for low-income and first-generation and minority students to have access to test prep, to opportunities to test. So I'd love for you to, to talk about your concerns for these young people and your advice for them as they move through the college application process this year. Sure. The first thing I've been telling students is that you have to understand as hard as it might seem to, to, to believe or hard as it is to believe all of us who are adults were once teenagers ourselves. <laughs> and, and we all went through high school and we all remember our junior or senior years. Some of it was great. Some of it not so great. But to have that taken away from you, we understand is really unfair. And you have to believe that people who are working in college admissions are doing so because they like high school students and they like working with parents and families. And so when you talk to us, I would hope you would expect 
some empathy and some understanding and mostly a sense that we're all in this together. You know, as hard as it's going to be for you to apply to a college, you can't take tests. Essays are going to be probably more important. Um, you can't demonstrate interest. You can't visit. And, you know, for us, it's going to be hard to make admissions decisions. And we're going to have students applying whose junior year is either everything was pass fail, or if you went to the Seattle school district, every class was an A. Or if you went to some other school districts, you got to choose between pass fail or a regular grade. But even if you have regular grades, we understand that being thrown into online learning at the last minute without any preparation probably isn't optimal and that there are going to be some things in your transcript that we're not used to seeing. You, ha you have to, and I hope you can understand that we will give you every benefit of the doubt whenever we can. And don't worry about the fact that you might not have tests or you might not have had the opportunity to take it only once or that uh, perhaps you haven't had a chance to talk to your English teacher and have him or her look at your essay before you submit it. We know what's happening and we're aware of it and we're going to do our very best by you. And at the end, there's about the same number of spots in all the freshman classes of all the colleges in the country. And there's about the same number of high school students. So while we can't say with, with certainty, in fact, we know it won't happen, that everybody will end up at the same place they would have ended up if there weren't the pandemic. My guess is for the vast majority of students, you're going to end up where you belong and where you probably would have ended up anyway. And so put it in your head, put it in your heart, and go with that flow and try to make it the best for whatever you do. And that's, that's all you can do at this point and give us the benefit of the doubt. John, a little follow-up. When schools say test optional, can they, can they believe, can a student believe that that's sincere? I think at the vast majority of institutions, that's the case. Our professional organization is asking colleges to affirm that. Even, you know, there are a few holdouts, and if, I won't mention names, but a few who are saying we really want you to test if possible. And it strikes me as horribly unfair and it strikes me as maybe an early indicator of how that institution would treat you if you decided to enroll there. You know, if an institution has a student-centered focus, you're going to find that out in the admissions process, number one. But secondly, you know, I'm looking at our earliest batch of applications that we've just imported from Common App, and about 68% of our freshmen are applying without tests. So even if, even if we said, we want everyone to test. We would, and we're not saying that. But even if we did, we would have to say, well, that's not going to happen. And we're going to have to make the best admissions decisions that we can. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks, John. Jeff, one of my holdovers from being an admissions person and a road warrior is my addiction to the Chronicle of Higher Ed. I still read it regularly. I, I recently relented and now I look at it online a little bit, but I still like that big newspaper that you just, you know, fold out and just go to town, all things college. So I was reading an article by Eric Hoover in the August 7th Chronicle of Higher Ed, and I'm going to read a quote and then pose my question to you. Everywhere, the test shortage of 2020 revealed how deeply standardized tests are embedded in the mechanisms of college going, including eligibility for state and institutional scholarships. My question is, as a veteran admission professional, what would you say to the class of 2021 whom are asking the question to test or not to test? 
right? I, I would say do not test at this point. Maybe I'm naive, but I think most people are not going to submit tests. And I'm glad that John's early Common App numbers seem to back up that assumption. I just think either students haven't had the opportunity to take the test, or they're not able to take their best, put their best foot forward by taking it as many times as they they intended to. I had a, a high school visit, a virtual high school visit today in Florida, and it remind the students reminded me that this isn't as cut and dry as I just made it seem, right? And you just hope that this whole situation's been fluid. It's changed often. You hope that there'll be some changes down the road to, you know, popular schools in certain areas, you know, sort of might take that pressure off students coming up. I also think there's certain students that benefited from standardized testing through the years. You know, the student whose maybe transcript wasn't the best reflection of their ability because, and they, they probably would be better college students and high school students because they could focus on their particular area of interest. And, you know, they really benefited from standardized testing as a way to show their ability that wasn't always present on their transcript. So, you know, I, I don't think it's going to be an easy decision for any family, but but in particular, there's some some tough cases right now. But I would just say, you know, the, the, the cancellations of test dates and you know, limitations of test centers, they continue to this day. You know, I just I don't think it's ideal for students and, and, and that, you know, that's the recommendation I gave to the students this morning. And that's what I'll continue to say. You know, you mentioned um, the state of Florida and the one the one sort of caveat to that is any institutional or any scholarships, state entitlement type programs are still requiring test scores. So for those students who were depending on those state incentives or state scholarships, those students, for many of us college counselors, we're still telling students if you can test, test, not necessarily for admission, but for some scholarships, you know, because that's that's something that's really beyond their control. But if they want to be eligible for it, for some of those monies, they have to present a test score. Right. Yeah. Yes, John. Yeah, just two quick things. So I, I have three blogs and I, the one called outhereinoregon.net is mostly designed for students who are looking at Oregon State. And on that, I wrote a blog post that says, please do not test. I mean, I was explicit about it and it got circulated. I don't know how, but with, within two days, it had something like 30,000 hits on it, which is a lot for my blogs <laughs> in, in a short period of time. And if you ever want to have me back to, to do a three-hour podcast on the history of tests and why standardized tests aren't a good thing, I'd be thrilled to come back and bring the most <laughs> powerhouse panel you could imagine to talk about, about why standardized tests are just a bad thing inherently and, and really should be done away with completely. Now, that sounds like a party. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right, well, thank you so much for having me again, Lynn and Vicki. And thank you so much again, Mr. Bokenset and Mr. Gallant for joining us. I'm Dylan with 200 Radio. Mr. Bokenset, following, following up on that question, should an applicant only submit an SAT or, S or ACT score if they're in the middle 50% range of admitted students? So I'm assuming you're asking if a student is applying to a test optional college, should they submit scores? Well, I would say, unfortunately, to, to cut as wide a protective swath as you possibly can, that's probably not a bad idea if you have them. But most institutions, you know, so let me back up. There are only two types of colleges in the country. 
One is where you have to deny students that you'd like to admit, and that's maybe 30 or 40 or 50 institutions. At the other 1,850 institutions, it's really sometimes a, a choice, not a choice of which of these really well-qualified students can we pick, but it's if you're qualified, you're going to be admitted. And I think when people, especially successful parents, read the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, they get that little slice of the upper tier of institutions who have to make those fine distinctions. So at those 1,850 institutions, your grade point average really says everything we need to know. And if you have a low GPA and a high test score, that's actually the highest risk of students that we would admit. And so a test score maybe can do something for you with some institutions, but it's really, at the, in the vast majority of circumstances, not going to be something that pushes you over the edge. If you have a test score and it's in that middle 50% range, I would say go ahead and submit it, just like if you have a great trumpet audition or a great review from a theater performance or something along those lines. But certainly don't expose yourself to COVID-19 to test if you don't have to. Well, perfect. Thank you so much. So also, thank you guys for having me on. I'm Nikolai with D100. And this is a question for you, Mr. Gallant. If an applicant wasn't able to take a standardized test because of a test center cancellation or some other COVID-19 related reason, so should the student mention it on the new Common App COVID section? Nikolai, thanks for the question. Sure. I would say whatever gives students the greatest peace of mind. And I appreciate that the you know, that section was added. I think that could be utilized in a lot of different ways. You know, this is an unprecedented time. I think this class was affected both last year and this year. So they might have a lot to put in that section, whether it's, you know, missed tests or other opportunities they missed out on. I also encourage students to use it in a positive way as well. Uh, maybe they've gained some skills maybe some skills around the home that they didn't realize uh, they had, maybe cooking skills or they're a better dog walker. You know, we're always looking for grit and resiliency, uh, you know, maybe some challenges that the students have had to overcome to complete coursework, you know, in this virtual world. I think still some students, when I, I've mentioned it virtually, it's a little harder to pick up the vibe of students when you're not in the room with them. But I, I do feel like there's some resistance there as far as they feel like it's making excuses or, you know, complaining. It's context. It's giving us context, and I think that's really important in any year to do as much as you can in the application, but, but especially true uh, during these times. Thanks, Jeff. John, you're bringing a unique perspective to this topic, having made the change to test optional at two institutions, both DePaul and Oregon State. My question is, what do you see as the challenges as college admissions officers are trying to learn about applicants, reviewing their applications. What are the challenges for them, especially if test optional is new for them? Sure. Well, I will tell you the biggest challenge is also the biggest reward. So as long as I've been doing this job, when admissions officers talk about students, we uh, sometimes, to our discredit, and something I think we should be proud of, is we use a lot of, lot of shorthand with students. And so we'll talk about, oh, this student with the 3.9 and the 13.50 and the four APs, right? And, and that's really an unfortunate way to put students into a box and try to assign some sort of value to them using a numeric scale. 
And once test optional comes in and you have students, it really forces you to stop using that shorthand and to stop thinking about students just on numeric scales that are sterile and have no texture, no granularity, no sort of sense of, of you know, better or worse. And so it causes you to look at other things more deeply and with more sincerity. And, and that can be hard at first because admissions officers, as, as anyone who's done the job knows, from the time November rolls around until sometimes middle of March or April, are often doing nothing but reading application folders. And, you know, it's just like if you have a lot of assignments for AP history, right? You got to slog through them, you got to get through them, and you have to do all that work. And it makes it harder. But if colleges and universities who go test optional don't add additional people to review or to help screen or to take even preliminary looks at applications, they're really doing themselves and the students a disservice. And so faculty love to get involved in the process and they can be great reviewers. Anybody who um, has a heart can work in admissions and do a good job. And so, you know, round up volunteers from the faculty, from the student government, from other organizations and deal with it that way. And what you'll find is you end up making good decisions, but you end up making good decisions for the right reasons. Thank you, John. Can, are, there, are there things that pop into your mind that you want to see or, or test optional colleges should look for from a student? Well, you know, obviously the, the things that we're looking for aren't changing a great deal from one year to the next if you go test optional. It's that you just don't have that one little element or that one little piece of information, which in the end really isn't very powerful anyway, once you look at everything else in the folder. And so, you know, there was a great debate in, when the University of California Faculty Senate and the Regents debated whether they should eliminate testing as a requirement. And someone talked about college admissions historically has been a mechanism where you try to predict how well a student is going to do in college and you skim the best 10% or 15% or 50% off the top. And there were a couple of regents who said, is that really the purpose of the admissions office to just find the best and put them through so they can get on the treadmill and be the best here? Or is there, or should there be another element to learning, desire, drive, motivation, character, personality, circumstances that you've overcome? And those are all things that I think we would all agree can make you successful in life, just as they can make you successful in college. And so eliminating those stupid tests, did I say stupid? Eliminating <laughs> those tests can, um, can give admissions officers the opportunity to take advantage of all the really cool and interesting things in a student file. Thank you, that's helpful for students to hear. Okay, Jeff. With so many students being challenged by closed test centers across the country, Boston College chose to change their testing policy this spring. Will you walk us through the decision to become test optional and share with students what you will place a greater emphasis on as you consider them for admission? Sure thing. I'll start by just sort of walking through the timeline, but I enjoy listening to John, obviously, and it was great listening to his description of what a test optional admissions process looks like, because we're going to find that out here firsthand this year at BC. You know, we made the decision around June 15th. So, you know, we weren't one of the first, but we weren't the last. Um, and, you know, I just, you know, I 
I benefit BC benefits from you know great leadership within the undergraduate admissions office, John Mahoney, now Grant Boslin. Um, they try to be thoughtful and deliberate. And also, too, yeah, there's a, there's many people outside the admissions office at a university that have to get on board with a decision of that magnitude. But you know, even back earlier in the summer, it just was not trending in a good good direction. And you know, and peer institutions, the institutions that we compete with for applicants, we're, we're moving in that direction as well. So it it just made sense. And how the rest of the summer unfolded, you know, seems to validate you know, our decision. Uh, but it doesn't come without concerns, you know. I think, you know, for for at my level, as you know, as an application reader, you know, you, you worry about does this will this translate to a spike in applications? You know, will it become a process that becomes a little unmanageable for us as a staff? So, John, yeah, you know, I appreciate your advice not to add people to staffs. You know, that might be uh, that might be the plan in some cases this year and you know what does that mean for the admissions process without standardized testing and, and you know it's been interesting to see how different schools handled it um just not talking uh, strictly about bc right now you know some schools have committed to a multi-year pilot of no standardized testing you know it'd be really interesting to see how that goes i, I would say that you know for Boston College, the intent the intention is that standardized testing will return, you know, in in 21-22. But we'll see how it goes, right? You know, this is I think I think it's fair for institutions that have used standardized testing in uh, you know a significant way in the process to have some time here to figure out what the process looks like without the tests. So younger students, you know, it still might be a reality for you. If and when we get through this crisis and things start to look a little more normal, you know, in the meantime, I think we're just going to continue to to look at the things that we've emphasized for years. You know, hopefully the students are presenting a transcript that, you know, when you look at it, you feel like it's a good reflection of their ability. You know, they've they've taken a, a set of courses that is appropriate for them and allowed them to, you know, excel in the classroom. You know, it's not a a. a, a, a a schedule that's so demanding that it surpassed their ability and changed, you know, changed the, the, the their grade tra trajectory. And then also, you know, writing, especially with the new COVID section, you know, any of the writing that we ask, Common App, school application, supplemental essays, involvement. One thing, and this isn't, well, necessarily test related, but just with COVID in general, you know, this past summer was a wild one. And, you know, Lynn and Vicky, from your vantage point, I'm sure you're aware of this. You know, there was more waitlist activity than ever before. And I worry that that's going to continue and maybe get exacerbated because of test optional. And I worry that even schools that aren't expression of interest, school, every school will be expression of interest a little bit this year, this upcoming year. Because if applicant pools grow and, it can, and you don't have a piece of information that you had in the past, our enrollment managers, especially what we're coming off of this past summer, be more interested in locking students up as quickly as possible, whether that means through early decision. And I'm not speaking for BC. We haven't had the, that, the conversations. You were still monitoring the early numbers. It's still too early, you know, as, as John talked about. But, you know, how is this going to transform the process in maybe not so great ways this year? And, you know, then you think about, not everybody has the same, it's not a level playing field in terms of the resources to express your interest. And so just trying to keep keep mindful of that. But but I, th these are just things that I'm thinking about given what's happened in the recent past. 
you know, I I hear what you're saying, and and I'm thinking, too, moving forward with this class of 2021, independent schools, college counselors like myself who have relationships with their students, my relationship with the admission person is going to become, I think, more significant because in some cases, students may not have visited like they would have normally. And so I think in independent schools like ours, college counselors can help you figure out sort of gauge interest uh, because we will know our kids. The downside of that is if you're a counselor with 500 kids, right. you're not in that same privileged position. And I would just say we've started making visits for the fall, virtual visits, and you go on the platforms like rep visits and score and, you know, Far more independent schools, private schools have their calendars up there than public schools at this point, or you know, schools where the counselor does have a caseload of that size. Well, that's, I think that's a troubling start. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons for this podcast mm -hmm. is to have another way of sharing information with students that may not have access to either their college counselor or a college counselor. So that was a big motivator for us to to get started. Absolutely, and, and helping them be better self-advocates because they'll need to do that. So this question is for John. So we have a lot of international students listening in. So do international students still need to take the TOEFL? Uh, it's, it's really a, a university call. And um, I can tell you what we did at Oregon State. Well, first of all, let me back up. I know international students hate the TOEFL and I understand why they hate it. <laughs> In 35, 37 years of doing this, I have found students with very high TOEFL scores who could not understand the most simple English conversation. And I have, I've been told a Midwestern accent, you know, it's fairly straightforward. I don't talk fast. And sometimes we carried on conversations and we struggled. And other times I've waived the TOEFL for a student after a five minute conversation. Or, or said your low scores don't matter because clearly you understand, you know, English well enough. So I think there are some problems with the test in and of itself. A lot of institutions, including mine, have begun accepting Duolingo, which is a, a test that's administered. You can take it at home and it's adaptive and it's designed to sort of assess English in a different way. It's not sort of a rote SAT type of examination, but it's far more natural setting, real language um, sort of adaptability. And if an institution is accepting that, um, it's probably easier for an international student to take a Duolingo test. I think it's faster too, if I'm not mistaken. And I'd recommend they do that if at all possible. But there will be some institutions, and understandably so, where a student has to be able to demonstrate some level of English proficiency. And it's not, that's not just for the protection of the university, that's for the protection of the student. You know, and no more than I could go to a, a university in Madrid right now could some students come to Oregon State and handle the work because language of instruction is English. So take it if you can. If you can't, think about Duolingo and make sure you're in communication with your admissions officer at the universities where you're thinking about applying and seeing what their policy is. And don't just go by the website, you know, contact someone directly via email, get an answer. Thank you. All right, perfect. This one, Jeff, this one's for you. Will a student be considered for merit scholarships if they don't submit a test score? And what about requirements for honors colleges or athletics? Sure. 
So we award primarily need-based aid, you know, so you know that that process will remain unchanged. We do have one merit scholarship program, and any student's gonna be eligible for it. You know, students applying with testing or test optional students. You know, for us it's limited. We offer it to about 20 to 30 students with the hope of yielding 15 of them out of a class of 2,300. So for us, you know, you know, we'll be interested to see, you know, how we work through that process, but that process has always included interviews and learning more about the student, you know, in person or virtually. So, you know, we have 31 you know, varsity sports at the division one level, like John's institution, we compete at the division one level. It was, it was nice to see the NCAA, you know, take that pressure off. You know, I think a whole bunch of students became eligible as soon as that announcement was made, but they're, you know, you're not going to need standardized testing to fulfill in, initial eligibility requirements. Now, there's still the GPA requirement and still core course requirements, but so that, you know, that's something we're not going to, you know, have to worry about. And, and for us, you know, I don't know if John wants to fill in if his institution is different, but I mean, we don't really, we don't have an honors program or honors colleges. So I can't speak to that, but as far as, you know, the athletic piece was big for us, because that was something we were really struggling with. And it, it makes you think if the NCAA can get on board, you know, why can't some of the other entities that we've talked about tonight, maybe jump in? Yeah, for us, you do not need a test score for any merit scholarship. And of course we did a preliminary analysis and looked at last year's pool for our very highest presidential scholarship. I think we had numbers aren't exactly right something like 250 students eligible. And if we took their test scores out, we probably had about 500 students who fell into the eligible category. And so it's very likely that we'll have a lot of work to do, as we indicated before, to find and discern the students who are most deserving and most qualified for it. But if you know anything about standardized testing, the idea of a hard cutoff on a test score is, is folly. Just because, you know, the difference between a 670 and a 770, uh, depending on which version of the SAT that you take, could be like three or four questions, you know, in any given year, in any cycle. So, uh, you know, it's always been patently unfair to have that hard and fast cutoff. And we're glad to be able to consider really well-deserving students who otherwise wouldn't have to, uh, wouldn't be eligible for it. As Jeff indicated, NCAA has said no to tests for qualifiers, so I think we'll be fine there. And Honors College, uh, not a requirement also. Perfect. Thank you both so much. One of the things I want to uh, just follow up with what John said a little bit earlier is uh, when students have a question, sometimes things are changing so fast. Uh, in college admissions that the um, changes may not always be reflected in the college's website. So if you have a question about something or you think something has changed, actually reach out to an admissions person via email. And then, as I always tell my students, check your emails. Because <laughs> when they respond to you, you need to open your email to see the response. <laughs> Can I follow up on that? Absolutely. Um, I, I put a blog post out there, the please don't test one, and I put my cell phone number in the blog. And I told um, the students, I said, if your parents don't believe what I'm writing here, have them call me or text me. And some of them emailed me, a lot of them texted me, a few of them just picked up the phone and called me. And one of the things that struck me and that it strikes me is really, um, I mean, it should be obvious, but it's not to us to do this this work 
is parents and students are afraid to contact admissions officers with questions. And you shouldn't be. I mean, you really should reach out and ask that person who's going to be reading your file or who um, manages campus visits or whatever it is. And I will give uh, Dylan and Nikolai the benefit of this advice. It's far better if it comes from the student than from the parent. Uh, so step up and do that yourself. But yeah, I so there are parents still texting me and emailing me um, and calling me almost every day, and and they have no interest in Oregon State, and I'm happy to talk to them. But but finding out that people are afraid to contact admissions offices was a real revelation for me. And and I would say things move so fast that sometimes you know experienced, talented college counselors like yourselves, you know it, things change before it gets to you. So I think we're just anxious to to be resources, especially with all the moving parts this year. So please, you know, I, I, I think it's appropriate for families to set up email addresses. Just, you know, it's, how easy is it to create a Gmail account? You know, that that multiple people in the family will have access to to catch anything that's going through. The one thing I will say is, you know, parents, if you call us, just own it. We're okay talking to you. You know, I'm talking to senior, but I mean, I've had parents in the last couple of years, I feel like I've had an uptick in this. You know, telling me that they're the student, like throwing their voice, you know, <laughs> just insulting all of us. Like, it's it's so bad. So, you know, we're happy to talk to students and parents. John, like, you know, I, I think I get more emails from, from students than phone calls. Sometimes I feel like if I get a phone call from a student, I almost fall off my chair because it, it's so rare. But I hope that increases this year because I, I think there's just a lot of uncertainty and things are, as we've talked about, more fluid than ever. So please count us as resources. I like the idea about getting a family email. I think that's great because that's more than ever, name. it's becoming a family decision. Mm -hmm. And we're we're sending so much content their way. You know, we're doing four weeks of open house style programming in September and October because I think we're nervous. We're not traveling. We have the time. And I just think something of interest could be easily missed if somebody, it, you know, if it's only one person checking that email, maybe a couple times a week, whereas if maybe there's two or three or multiple people taking a look at it. Yeah, that all that. That human touch is so important, and and I think that's what we're all worried about. My students and and parents at my school included that access may be going away a little bit, and and honestly, now is a time to to try to keep that going and and increase it because the humanity the, the pandemic has taken some of the humanity out of this, and and we've got to do our best to keep it alive. I agree. Well. John and Jeff, this has been great. Is there anything you would like to share with our listeners that hasn't been discussed? 541-908-7210 with <laughs> my cell phone number and any parent that wants to call or better to text, because especially if you're on the East Coast, let me know what I can do for you. <laughs> that's, why, that's why he's such a leader. I don't. I don't have that. Those guts. I might give a colleague cell phone number. Um, but uh, well, you have a little one in the house, Jeff. Anybody have heard her during this? But, but um, I, you know, I just say, you know, I hope that this senior class has the reverse of what happened last year, where you know, you're dealing with your disruption at the beginning of the year, and you know, maybe there'll be some time to do traditional type visits before you have to make a decision or to confirm an early decision in the spring. And you can have some of the traditional celebratory senior events. And I really hope that, you know, maybe two or three years from now when the students are in college and they look back to today, so much has happened and life is so much different. Maybe not all the way back to old earth, but uh, like how things used to be, but, but close. 
uh, that maybe this feels like decades in the past because everything's in such a, a different place. Uh, you know, that's the hope. Absolutely. Well, we'd like to thank John Bokenstead from Oregon State University and Zeph Gallant from Boston College for being here with us today. I know I have been taking notes. I hope our producer Dylan and, and, and Nikolai have been taking notes. You've learned some important things today and I hope our listeners feel the same. Thank you guys very much for being with us. Thank um, you so much. My, my pleasure. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thanks for asking. Great. We're, we're delighted to have you. And coming up on Talk College to Me are some podcasts that will help you get a good start on the college application essay. We'll address scholarships and financial aid and an essential to-do list for college seniors this year. For more information discussed in this episode, please visit d100.college. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of their respective institutions or organizations. Thank you for tuning in to Talk College to Me. See you next week.